This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Focus, focus, focus. Look, 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 look. Hey, this is Benjamin Boyce, and I'm back in the saddle, and I have an interview for you today with John Vervaki, who is a professor at the University of Toronto. He teaches cognitive science, mindfulness, Buddhism, among a host of other fascinating topics. He is at the intersection of theoretical understanding, of historical knowledge, of practical implementation, and of technical know-how, or at least at the forefront of technology, especially with AI, consciousness studies, and how do we develop a wise, you know, not only AI, but a wise and wiser and wisening society. This discussion wanders across a range of topics that are very pertinent to today's situation and going forward. Uh, It blew my mind. He is somebody you absolutely have to watch. He's got a series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis that has new episodes coming out every Friday. He's also got a lot of other projects in the works and books, and we talk about all that in this interview. Here you go. Strap in. Open your mind. Take out your notebook if you believe in them, and or if you're just staring at the road, you know, just open your mind to this. And I totally promise that you will be stimulated, if not aroused. And I mean that in a technical sense. Here you go. I'm glad that you started doing this series. What prompted you to do that? Um, a couple of things. Uh, one was a lot of my students said, you, you're, you, you're really good at lecturing, but you've got really crappy production values. And uh, uh, we want to really help you make much better videos and uh, so a bunch of them came to me and said, like, my dad's a professional editor, and hmm. I do film work, and let's make this video series. And so I said, yeah, sure, great. Um, and then uh, secondly, um, I, I was just interested in, in uh, reaching a broader audience because I think these ideas are important and relevant, and uh, I want to uh, be able to participate in the discussion and contribute. I think I have something to say that's uh, useful and contributory, and I want to do that. Yeah. And is this adapted from a course that you've done, or did you develop this whole thing well, it's specifically for this series? So there's an earlier thing that it overlaps with uh, quite a bit called Buddhism in Cog Sai, uh, which is on YouTube. But I've uploaded, I've, uh, I've integrated that with also uh, material from another course, a course I do on the psychology of wisdom, and then another course I do on thinking, reasoning, and problem solving. And then just additional research I'm doing and books I'm writing and articles I'm publishing. So the intent of the series is to be, you know, right now sort of the complete argument. Uh, Because all of my arguments, all my courses are individual arguments and then they fit together into a comprehensive argument. So I wanted to present the whole thing in in one place, at least as it stands right now. So I'm trying to make it as uh, up to date and as complete and as comprehensive as I can. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it's built on a historical trajectory that you're you're starting histor- historically the development of I guess what you call uh, psychological tools or cognitive uh, technologies. Yes, yeah, psychotechnologies. Yeah. Um, so the cor- uh, the course 
um, well, the lecture series or whatever you want to call it, is it, it's actually divided into two sections. The first section is a historical analysis. It, it's basically, uh, I, I hope, you know, a well-reasoned, well-evidenced uh, historical argument as to uh, the emergence of the meaning crisis, and it's to, and that's to try to give us uh, some of the important features, uh, both conceptually and phenomenologically, of the meaning crisis. Uh, but then the second half of the argument is uh, structural functional. That's it's a much more scientific analysis. So mm. okay, so what are the cognitive mechanisms at work when people are engaged in this project of meaning making, meaning seeking, and then and of course. I mean, that's an analytic divide. You can see that in the historical stuff, there's lots of cog sci brought in. And when I do the when I do the cog sci analysis, of course, I'll constantly be alluding and drawing upon the historical. So the the idea is to try and get a convergent argument between the historical and the scientific. And um, speaking of cognitive science and history, what is the history of cognitive science? Like, where is it at right now? Where did it start? What is it? Uh, okay, so. <laughs> Um, that's interesting. Uh, so you're going to get a particular Verbakian take on cognitive science, right? <laughs> uh, so just just uh, just as long as that's clear. Um, uh, so cognitive science sort of starts in the early '80s. There was actually a book uh, by Gardner called *The Mind's New Science*, trying to indicate uh, the emergence of cognitive science, and it was born from the realization that there. There were many different disciplines talking about the mind, but they were talking about it at different levels of analysis, yeah. using different methods of investigations, different ontologies, and um, and and of course that's how science works. It specializes, etc. And I want to say right up front that I'm not, you know, critical of that. But one of the things that was realized was that you know. Each one of these disciplines was talking about a layer at which we talk about the mind. You know, uh, neuroscience is the brain level, artificial intelligence is the information processing level, psychology, the behavioral level, linguistics, the language level, anthropology, the cultural level, right? And the idea is it's very improbable that these different levels of the mind are not, you know, causally interacting, constraining, and affecting each other. So we need a discipline that tries to look for how these different levels uh, of reality are interacting with each other and the way we do that presumably is to try and get the different discourses that correspond to each one of these levels uh, to properly talk to each other uh, and, and get uh, a, a more integrative picture mm -hmm. and so the, the main goal of cognitive science the main goal of cognitive science is what I argue is a process of synoptic integration you're not trying to reduce anyone to yeah. any of the disciplines. It's not a reductive enterprise, but it's about creating powerful and plausible bridging constructs between yeah. the various disciplines and levels. That seems like great practice for kind of what you're talking about with the meaning crisis, what you call the meaning crisis, which in one way of looking at it, we have a whole bunch of people from a whole bunch of different traditions or interpretations of traditions, all kind of meeting together online right now and there's this huge you know just tumult it's not even a clash because there's just so many different particles going on and it seems right. like what you're practicing doing in the realm of cognitive science might translate well into you know translating you know the orthodox tradition and the jewish tradition and the buddhist tradition yep. and and you know the even the the atheist critique of religion yep. and getting us all kind of to try to um, see each other for what we bring to the conversation. I think that's an astute observation, and I think it's at least a, a, an accurate representation of how I'm framing my project, right? I do think that 
cognitive science is a very pertinent discipline for trying to do exactly that. Uh, the meaning crisis is, is, is if, first of all, just go back to that structure. It's not something that's hitting us at just one of these levels. It's hitting us at all these levels. And as you said, mm -hmm. it's hitting us in this pluralistic fashion. And so a discipline that's dedicated to uh, talking about this, um, I, I, I think, is very relevant. I did a, a TEDx talk uh, not that long ago called uh, Cognitive Science Rescues the Deconstructed Mind. And I was trying to show why cognitive science is so pertinent to trying to uh, address aspects of the meaning crisis. W one thing, in fact, not uh, among many causes, and you can see from the video series, I'm talking about lots of causes of yeah. meaning crisis. But amongst one cause is, is exactly that scientific fragmentation of ourselves that has happened because we have neuroscientists talking about us as if we're brains, we have artificial intelligence people talking about us as if we're computers, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And right, where are we? So the, the self is kind of fragmented, and we're very equivocal when we're even talking, even using the word mind. And so that in, in, is mm -hmm. one way, again, amongst many, in which we're caught up in, right, a meaning crisis, you know, the, the very attempts to understand the mind have fragmented our self, a sense of self and mind. And cognitive science can address that precisely because it's trying to stitch all those pieces back together again. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, uh, are you optimistic with uh, the way that humanity is heading, especially in light of social media? And what I see happening on social media isn't necessarily a meaning crisis. It's that crisis is the principal way of creating meaning, of getting people to converge upon a event. Uh, the crisis is what pulls us all together. So it even amplifies our perception that the world is in crisis. Um, do you think that there's tools or ways that we can behave as we upload ourselves into the virtual world to kind of calm down those tides? I, I think so. I mean, so um, I, I think that's an excellent point. Um, uh, first of all, on the, on the first uh, aspect of it, um, I think the social media is contributing to an important aspect of the meeting crisis, which is sort of the increasing perception and I think even existence of sort of bullshit in our society and the yeah. sense that bullshit is on the increase. And we actually talked about that in the book that I wrote with Christopher Pietro and Philip Misovic, right? And bullshit um, is a technical term for you. Yeah, I'm using bullshit in a technical term there. And, and basically in a way that's derived from Frankfurt's seminal essay uh, on bullshit. Um, and if we want, we can go back to talk about that. But I want to address your second point, um, which is, yeah, um, so I, I really am making, this is a big series I'm making. I mean, it's, it's, it's intended to be 50 videos precisely because I don't want to, right, I want to do a very, I want to use this medium and try to get it back to, you know, careful analysis, historical analysis integrated with scientific analysis, lots of argumentation, lots of dialogue, right, and really try and, you know, I don't know if it's quixotic or not, but at least an exemplary manner, say, look, this is how this social media can be used, right, to really yeah. reflect on these things in a penetrating fashion. Yeah. So you are optimistic or you're just going to do the best that you can. Yeah. So I <laughs> take the high road. See, the, the, okay, so I have a bias I have to I have to work against. My my friends and family have always told me that I'm generally sort of I tend towards the dark end of the spectrum, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and so, um, and I tend to spend I like I spend I tend to spend years just formulating a problem before I try to address it. That's just my uh, particular intellectual style. Um, so, I don't know if I'm 
optimistic. I, I'm getting more optimistic. I think that's a fair thing to say because as I'm doing this, yes, I'm, I, you know, you're getting the interaction with trolls and other things yeah. as I'm doing it, but I'm also getting a lot of people that strike me as, you know, authentically concerned with this issue and, and not just in discourse. They are out there and they are investing their time and their money and their effort. They're trying to build like, you know, I'm going to be talking to one guy. He's he's involved in a network of non-traditional monasteries. There's another mm. person to be talking to. They're trying to say, can we use, you know, what, what the Nordic countries did right at the beginning of the 20th century to build up these secular, uh, you know, retreat centers where people could go and practice self-cultivation and getting yeah. a deeper cultural understanding. Right. And, and how that really led to a very stable you know, a uh, uh, set of democracies in, in the Scandinavian hmm. world. And so, I, and so I'm meeting more and more people who, like I said, are really, you know, they're really putting um, effort and um, ingenuity into trying to appropriate and understand this problem and hmm. respond to it. And so, and that's been happening, I mean, that's that's basically a gift from doing the video series. That's just been happening because I did the video series uh, more and more. Like, I was aware that there was a lot of people talking about this, and there was a convergence, yeah. right? And, and that's part of why I'm doing the work I'm doing. But uh, to feel this uh, this bottom-up or grassroots, I don't know what the right metaphor is, and I don't want to be pejorative with it, but that there's people mm -hmm. out there trying to create sociocultural alternatives um, and responses to the meaning crisis. That's been a cause to making me more optimistic. And so a uh, part of me is looking forward to trying to become involved with them. And I, I'm hoping yeah. that my idea and work can contribute to their work in some uh, facilitatory fashion. Mm -hmm. There's uh, this is kind of a different route, but I think it's pertinent. You did an interview with Jonathan Peugeot, um, I think it yep. was uh, early last year and or in the beginning half of last year. And you put a challenge to him um, where you said that I don't know how to phrase this, but you said that there's all these different um, traditions that cultivate meaning, cultivate wisdom, actually, yep. in the individual. And these different traditions basically have a mythological framework. Uh, yes. With Jonathan, it's Orthodox uh, Orthodoxy or uh, the Orthodox yeah. Church, Greek Orthodox Church. And you challenged him to say that there's things inside of your tradition that can translate outside of the, tra the tradition. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there, it seems like um, one and of the difficulties. He took that question very seriously to give yeah. him credit. He yeah. did. He did. And but one of the uh, one of the difficulties of having a tradition is that it kind of preframes your you know the way that you see the world, and it's very difficult for you to kind of anonymize or strip the particularity out of your tradition in order to offer it to somebody outside of it. And I wonder if there's uh, do you see that problem? Do you see like like your gravitation to Buddhism because it, it's more easy easily translated into an anonymous anybody can get on board with this stuff, or is this just a problem that we're always going to have? Well, well, there's a lot to say about that. So, uh, I mean, yeah, there's an attraction to Buddhism. Uh, I, I'm a little bit over-identified with Buddhism. I mean, the, the part of the mandate of that course was Buddhism and cognitive science. Yeah. Um, and part of what I'm trying to show in the new series is, and I do, of course, talk about the Eastern traditions, but I invest a lot more time yeah. in the Western traditions, right, and try and show what, you know, Arthur Vos Lewis broadly calls the Neoplatonic heritage uh, mm -hmm. of our Right. 
And I, I, I so I, I, I'm trying to get, and other people, DT Suzuki famously tried to get those two uh, to talk to each other, and I'm interested in that. And this goes back to a point we made earlier. So there's a there's there's a practice point about well, the practice of uh, cognitive science really is a practice about trying to mm. you know, again not reduce or anonymify or homogenize, but can I can I build build bridge build bridging constructs between these? And so part of what was going on, and I, I think I I don't know, I, I obviously I'm self biased. But Jonathan seems to think it too. I mean, there was a discussion between somebody who I think I, I identify as non-theistic, right, and somebody who's clearly a theist, and yet we 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 were able to you know create quite a good bridge in a discussion of something that's you know central to his tradition, the notion of sacredness, and yeah. so. That struck me as an example of a, a real possibility. I mean, forgive the pun, but people have to come into it with good faith, right? They have to come yeah. into it uh, really willing uh, to 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 discuss. And, yeah. and you know, yeah. and, and um, so there's that part. And then in the discussion with Jonathan, and if you want to get into this at some point, we can. I think there's also a deeper theoretical foundation, and this has to do with more sort of the hard science, right? Talking about this notion of relevance realization, and uh, you know, not that we can we can have probably a like a universal theory of how relevance realization works as a process, but that is not going to give us a universal a definition, hmm. stable account of what people do or should find relevant. You see, and I often use the analogy of like we can have a theory of evolution by natural selection, but that doesn't say that every species is going to be the same or this is what fittedness looks like. Right? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. It's heavily contingent on you know environmental factors and then personal makeup factors and all that stuff. And if wisdom is exactly about doing that balance of tailoring what is general to to the context in a sensitive and perspicacious manner, then yeah. of course, that's exactly what you would expect to be the case. Yeah. Do you think that uh, I've gone through your stuff? It's, it's fascinating. I just devoured it all over the last oh. week and a half. And, um, and one of the like metaphors that I kept on seeing when you talked about like getting all these different disciplines to speak to one another was like, uh, like trying to create a symphony out of all these different, you know, subsections. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and yeah. and what is that which unifies? And it has to be the symphony isn't necessarily something that reduces everything to one thing. It it unifies them all in an action. Like there's a project. Yeah. There's somewhere that we're going, and that everybody can contribute um, without reducing their natures to one homogenous thing. And it's all lifted up, and right. and everything's different. But but we we get into a contention, uh, of, a beautiful contention that produces a, a unified effect. I think that's exactly right. Uh, not to compliment my own metaphor, what I mean is I think your take on it is is accurate as to uh, how I'm using the metaphor. And uh, and that's where, like, examining the history, right? Like, you okay. see the actual revolution in which, you know, there's these psychotechnologies affecting various areas, for example, uh, of the Eastern Mediterranean. And, there, and so they all go through this radical transformation because of these shared or at least similar psychotechnologies, but they also craft specifically different, right, mythology mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, fitting uh, the axial revolution to uh, their, their um, the particular historical, cultural, and environmental context. And so, and, and then, of course, what you can even see in the ancient world is eventually those those things come together, right? And this is further on in the, mm -hmm. uh, in the video 
series, but you can see, like you can see, you know, the, the Hebrew uh, uh, axial mythology. And please remind your readers that I use mythology in, in, a, in a complementary sense, not in a pejorative sense. So the, 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 the Hebrew mythology of, of time as cosmic narrative is going to meet, right, the, the, the Greek mythology, right, of wisdom as this uh, ontological transcendence. And then they're going to get it together in Christianity in a, in a very a powerful and unique way. So we, our history tells us that, you know, these things out of common source you can right get these divergent things but because they share a common source they can later on hmm. talk to each other even integrate systematically in some fashion something new can emerge from that integration these are all things that have really happened they're not utopic ideas the history says no no this is how this this kind of machinery actually unfolds mm -hmm. in episode three of your series which came out just this past friday you talk a lot about narrative and you talk yes. about basically you, you do a pretty strong critique about the current generation or i guess just the current few generations of the West where we have uh, biblical illiteracy. We don't really understand, like, not just the religion, but what you call the grammar of yeah. our cognition. And yes. and you go you go into that. And narrative is one of the things that is included in that. And, and this idea of the self going through kind of an orgasmic, uh, you know, uh, dip yeah, yeah. and climax and resolution and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, very much. And I mean, that's I'm going to come back to this later when I go to the scientific side of stuff, when I talk about the cognitive science of narrative. I mean, there's a lot of work on going on now um, that um, you act, that the, the so first of all, that narrative is a psychotechnology. You are not naturally narrative. Daniel Hudo has really good work on this. You, we practice yeah. narrative all day long. We tell stories, we watch stories, we read stories, we practice narrative with our little kids. And notice yeah. what we do. We have to really, really simplify the narrative. Tinky Winky goes to the market because we're yeah. constantly practicing narrative. And then the idea, mm -hmm. and what's interesting is, right, up until about four or five years of age, when kids get that, when they internalize that psychotechnology of narrative, they don't really have what you and I experience as autobiographical memory. Mm -hmm. Right, the, the ability, you know, you have an, you're an autobiography. You're largely yeah. a story, right? And what's interesting about that is this ability, this form of memory, sort of takes shape from internal. At least that's what I think some of the best science is pointing towards, right? Mm. That's how we actually acquire our autobiographical memory and become temporally extended selves. Our very sense of ourself and what we are, a story extended in time, right, huh. is brought in uh, from internalizing a particular narrative and 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 then and and, and it, it but it goes two ways this is about the participatory stuff i talked about because as you're becoming a story and you're actually getting this cognitive function of autobiographical memory the world is starting to be a storied place for you so yes. everywhere you look there's a so you that's what i mean about that's this conformity theory that aristotle yes. talked about right you and the world are conformed you share a fundamental identity you're both stories it's, yeah. and it's, not, it's not a belief you have or even a set of skills. It's a sharing of identity between between you and the world in a deep, deep way. Yeah, yeah. The That's interesting because I, I spent a lot of time working in preschool. And one of the things that I experienced was that a narrative is basically our reality. That's what I thought because... As soon as I started speaking in a sequence of events with a character going through yep. a sequence of events and 
like you say, it's very simplistic. There's no real resolution. It's just one yeah. cascading image after another, but there's still that central character. I always thought that that narrative is not a technology. It's just how we already see the world because the children would automatically, like yeah. everything would, they would turn off. It's like like they were just plugged into this. Yeah. And that, that goes through. That goes to Daniel Siegel's work and other people's work. So, you know, the idea of psychological attachment, not the Buddhist notion. This is the attachment relation, the bond that yeah. forms between parental figures and young children. And it's absolutely necessary to our survival. If you don't have attachment, you're doomed, right? And so what's important is what in the parent predicts attachment? Well, one of the things that's very predictive of your ability to attach to your child and get your child to attach to you is your skill with autobiography. Hmm. Hmm. So you're actually plugging into that that right there. See what autobiography, what autobiographical skill really does is, again, you are setting yourself up to be imitated by the kids, and this yeah, is a participatory yeah. kind of learning. This isn't them just having beliefs about you or even getting your skills. They're identifying with you. They're yeah. taking on your perspective. They're trying to internalize your perspective into their metacognition, right? Yeah. And so that is a very powerful very powerful way in which, again, a psychotechnology actually transforms us at the level of hmm. identity, the way the agent and the, the, you know, the way your agency and the arena of the world are being co-defined. Mm -hmm. and, and the fact that this, this, this is enmeshed historically, it's sourced in, you know, ancient Israel and time as a cosmic narrative and that, hmm. you know, the future is open and that the future itself has the time itself has this structure of a story, a climax, a turning point, a resolution. And that, you know, and that your your choices matter and steer the course of things. Right. And so we can talk about progress and yeah. we still talk this way right and yeah. and we still it's like what well, that's what i mean because of this autobiographical narrative and then this mythology again in the positive sense of the word is so woven into us we experience ourselves as beings in need of progress yeah right yeah we, there's a story and we have to we have to choose and direct and right and sense where is this going and it has to progress and we yeah. we, we that's and that's how we experience ourselves and like i say it's not just like we it's not like a, a, a self-directed belief we form about ourselves. You know, it wells up from the foundations of our psyche. And is that particular to the West or is that just a, a human thing? Okay, Did the West so, just articulate sure. it uh, in a particular way? Or? So, so, so what, what, what's interesting is narrative, and this is Daniel Hudo's work, narrative is the universal. We practice it everywhere because narrative is basically how you turn a, a biological human into a moral person. I mean, yeah. personhood. Or, or an actant, somebody who can actually do something because they can conceive of something as a sequence of events. Not only that, they can take moral responsibility for it, which is an additional thing about beyond being just an intelligent agent, right? So yeah. I, I want to get both of those things in the sense of person, okay. right? The collective competence and moral responsibility, the two together. Okay. Right? Huh. So that's universal. And the, and, the, and the practice of narrative is universal. But the idea that that could then be extended to understand time, yeah, okay, right. The way of understanding this axial idea that there's an illusory aspect to reality, or a decadent aspect of reality, and a transcendent or more real aspect of reality, and understanding that as this movement from, you know, a captivity in a pre-axial empire like Egypt, and a movement to a promised land, and yeah. so we and and notice how many 
so-called secular ideologies are so utopic in yeah. way of understanding things. And it's the same thing. History, right, history has this grammar and we figured it out. Yeah. This is how it should go. And yeah, exactly. Very much. So that brings me to the question, and I'm going to unpack this, but uh, just the, the tweet is, are there bad stories or only bad tellings? Like with the utopic vision of, let's just say the oppression narrative, that history is a bunch of people who are oppressing the oppressed and values never created. It's, it's only transferred by means of trickery or, or force. Sure, so sure. When, when enough people seem to internalize that narrative, it leads to something like... Um, we can say communism or what happened in Russia. Like there's this narrative that goes viral and then goes yeah. critical and then it, it breaks down because there's something inherently wrong with that narrative or that narrative never offers something that can fulfill itself without generating more oppression, let's say. So I wonder like, if there's ways that we can look at uh, and critique different narratives as good or bad and if there's tools that we can use to judge them. Well, I, I think there are, and again, um, what I'm trying to show, I mean, the, the videos are intended to not just be an argument, and I hope this isn't condescending. They're meant to be educational. They're trying, they're trying to give you with tools, and I think we should do a historical analysis of our narratives. And mm -hmm. For example, so, you know, communism comes out of Marx and comes via Hegel. This is very fast, of course, but Hegel yeah. is, you know, this a kind of rational secularization of the Christian narrative. Many okay. people have said that. That's not original to me. And then what Marx does is he doesn't really disturb the narrative. He just in, inverts, right? Right. Yeah. It's it's not the world of it's not the world of meaning. It's the world of matter, and he inverts everything. But it's still that same thing, that same narrative. But part of the problem, I think, with the way it's taken up, uh, is Marx t tends to it's hard to critique Marx. Talking about Marx is like talking about the Bible. It's it's a complex thing, right? <laughs> uh, 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 but but so one point I would make is part of the problem is in that process, right? And and, and it was already that this process was pre-existing in Christianity. This narrative idea is getting separated from the. So there was an ecology within Christianity. I'm not a Christian, and I'm not, I'm not here to proselytize, but there was an ecology of practices. That narrative was enmeshed with all kinds of other psychotechnologies of deep self-transcendent, self-transformation, okay, yeah. cultivation of wisdom. And what happens through Hegel and Marx is that the psychotechnology of narrative gets disconnected, yeah, right? Yeah. right? And you get, the, you get the emergence of ideology in the sense that all that governs and that all that matters about it is our system of beliefs. And this grasping and asserting of propositions is the sum total of our personhood and the essence of who and what we are. And then we lose the depths of the psyche. We lose all the procedural yeah. knowledge, knowing all this participatory knowing we were talking about just a few minutes ago that's actually within that narrative technology. That's actually being severed and lost. And so... By combined, like I just did, I'm trying to show you an answer, not just state it, right? By using a historical and a scientific analysis, we can actually critique this narrative, I think, in a useful way. We can say, mm -hmm. look, you know, we, we have to be wary of the way psychotechnologies can be sort of abstracted from their ecology and how mm -hmm. they can support our self-interpretation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it, it seems like what you're arguing for is that 
there's always going to be an array of analyses and and there needs to be an ecology and so when we go forth and say this is my system of belief there's probably key components that we can say will build up into something stable and then generate generative in a positive sense. Um, so yes. it needs to be rooted, like you say, in, in wisdom without like that, that self-transcendence or like I'm going to look at myself like and I think that's kind of the Petersonian, you know, clean your room like before you go yeah. out and change the world, <laughs> clean your room, because if, yeah. if you can connect the the individual to the universal, then you have some sort of dynamic um stable bridge between the two that won't get lost in this kind of because it seems like protest and activist culture is a form of transcendence into this unified you know like black block literally just this block mass of like we are going to change the world so it still has that progressive you know literally progressive tent but it doesn't have there's something missing and so every individual can just start smashing windows because that's fine because their their personal responsibilities lost in that so a good thing to, to yeah exactly and and so um um you know Tillich till always talked about that you have to balance the participation against the individuation the two projects are always have mm. to be kept in tension with each other and so a thing to ask somebody who's into political activism is just but how do you internalize that in the way you've been taught when you and i've been talking how does that internalize into your projects of reconfiguring you know, the structural functional organization of your psyche and your existential modes in the world. Like, don't tell me about your political beliefs or your political actions. How does it translate into a process of sapiential development? If you mm. can give me a coherent story, I'm going to listen to you a lot more. But if all you can say, if all you can do is sort of rage against the machine, it's like, but then you're like, again, you're, 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 mm. you're not getting, a, you're not actually understanding, I think, I would argue, the machinery that you're involving yourself in. And you're acting in, and this is where you get the classic idea of bullshit. Bullshit is when, mm. right, the same, okay, so the, the liar misdirects you by, tap, by tapping into the way you're committed to truth. Like you care about the truth, and if I can get you to believe that something's true that I know is false, I can manipulate your behavior. That's, and that's why lying, lying is vicious, right, because we care about the truth. Right. But the bullshit artist, according to Frankfurt, is different. The bullshit artist is basically getting you to be indifferent to the question of truth. And the way I sort of try to build on this is the idea mm. is what the bullshit artist do, does is get you right to uh, pay attention to the salience of the information, how catchy it is. Yes. And how impelling it is. Right. And make you indifferent to whether or not it's true. This is how advertising advertising fundamentally works, right? You you know here's the commercial, here's this amazingly sober, attractive person in a bar, and here's these other amazing, attractive people around them, and they're all just so happy. You go into a bar, come on, that's not the situation, right? And you know this isn't true, and they know you know it isn't true. But you know what happens? You buy the bloody product, mm. right? Because it's been made salient. And, and so the, okay. my concern about the, the ideologies is that you can get swept up in the salience of the cause yeah. and you've, you've disconnected from a deeper understanding of the very machinery you're participating in. Yeah, right? it's a salience without relevance, like like personal deep relevance to well, you. Well, yeah, it, it, or it's, it's salience that is disconnected. I mean, this is the Socratic idea. It's salience that's disconnected from truths that are transformative in nature you want like you want mm. you want you you want your machinery to be such that when you're 
when your your salience machinery is directing you at something, you have tra- and it's a training thing. You've trained the truth seeking, the reality checking machinery to try and keep up as much as possible. Um, mm-hmm. And see, this is crucial because you you can't lie to yourself. You, that, that, we use that metaphor, but technically it's not correct because lying requires that I know that P is false okay. and I say to you. But you, you, so, but you, and beliefs aren't voluntary things. You can, like, you, you can, I don't know why televangelists do when they tell me to believe, for example. I can, I can hope that everybody loves me, right? I can desire that everybody loves me. I can imagine that everybody loves me. But if I just, I'm going to believe it now. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, I, I, it's not something I can do, right? But so, Belief doesn't work that way, and you can't lie to yourself. But you know what you can do? You can bullshit yourself because of the way attention is self-organizing. Look, Mm. I hold something up to you, right, and that makes it salient to you. It catches your attention. But you can also make something salient by directing your attention, right? So a loud noise catches your attention, but you can also make something salient by directing your attention. So what you can do is you can direct your attention at something, make it more salient, so it's more likely to catch your attention, which makes it more salient, which makes it more likely to catch your attention, and you go and buy the alcoholic product because exactly yeah. that self-organizing process. Yeah. You see, that's that's what worries me about when people are talking about sort of the, how urgent and impelling right the, the cause is. Yeah. Without, if you'll allow the pun, without understanding the causal mechanisms at work in a deep yeah. set. Yeah, a Sorry, couple that, weeks ago. That was a bit of a speech, but there was an argument no. I needed to make there. That's why I have you here, because of your speeching abilities. Um, <laughs> a, a few weeks ago, something exactly what you're describing happened. Um, there was this 40-second uh, clip of uh, a high school kid with a red cap on with white letters that said, Make America Great Again smiling at a uh, Native American man beating a drum. And that went, that sparked a huge reaction in the media spheres, specifically these big media generating journos. Um, and, And they said some awful things about the kid, like how he should be put in a wood chipper and like, like how, uh, you know, that, that smirk reminded somebody had a whole breakdown just because of the way that the kid was smiling. And then a few a couple days later like the full a full video came out that showed the whole context of it that completely undermined that instant narrative and right. completely undermined that instant reaction but these uh these people in the media and then all the people that that follow them are so trained and so keyed in that as soon as they see this red hat with the white letters that say make america great again they already have a narrative and they're already they're they're just they're waiting for a moment where they can have their justice, where they can have their revenge. And and it seems like they're operating on autopilot because when the the context comes out, very few of them apologized. Very few yeah. of them like backtracked or anything like that because it didn't seem like it seems like we're all caught up in like, well, let's just go forward. Let's go forward. Unless unless there's somebody that we can take account for their past actions. You know, he said the N word 10 years ago. We can go after him. You know, it's very selective. It's very weird and worrisome. I, I, I mean, I do worry about exactly that. I, I worry about the fact that the media, uh, because of its rapidity and because it's built around catchiness and salience, yeah. uh, really does exacerbate uh, and magnify our tendency to fall into bullshit. Um, or magnify. And, 
Yeah, magnify it. Yeah, magnify it. I think what's happening, if I understand you correctly, is also that tends to drown out uh, the people who are trying, as I'm suggesting, to get a more accurate mm. understanding of what was actually taking place, what was going on here, and can we get a better historical analysis? Can we use our best scientific understanding mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. rational reflection, our philosophical acumen, to try and come up with a more sophisticated interpretation of this situation? And yeah, I, I do think it gets drowned out. Um, and I don't, I mean, again, that goes back to an earlier point. All I can do is what I'm trying to do, right? All I can do is yeah. try and exemplify how to do, I mean, I, I, I specifically enter into dialogue with people that I, it's in some important senses I don't agree with, like, you know, like Jonathan and uh, Paul mm -hmm. Vanderclay is doing all of this stuff commenting on and, you know, and he has some criticisms of me, and I'll acknowledge when I think the criticism is good. So other times I just disagree, but I, I, I always try and reach out and say, you know, even when you're making a criticism, there's respect, there's good humor, yeah. there's insight here. You've, you're, you're, you're causing me to think and reflect and go back and at least refine my position. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I think we just need to be doing more of that and, yeah. uh, and arguing for it and trying to exemplify it yeah. and trying to inspire people. I don't know what else to do as a response to it. Well, I, I've been thinking a lot in, in response to your work about AI and about yeah. basically what we're doing now is we're uploading our consciousness into this virtual state, which is much quicker and, and more, uh, what's the word, salient, because yeah. it's built out of what we pay attention to. That's what it's built out of. And as yeah. we translate ourselves into this quicker, brighter uh, realm of you know, light and sound, this astral plane, um, what is being uploaded are first and foremost our passions are are you know which are based in this world of survival and yeah. and you know reproduction and and eating and yeah. hunger that's the first stuff that goes up there and and it seems like a lot of work needs to be done uh to 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 kind of uh allow for a separation maybe or or a distillation of like the lower passions like they have their place you know i mean the, the internet is basically built out of porn and advertising you know and then on top of that is this cognitive stuff and i wonder if if you think that that ai will have a role in in producing a translation or 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 manipulating our attention towards or away from that coarse reaction stuff that doesn't go anywhere except to gratify a, a base urge yeah that's a really good point i gave a talk not that long ago at the center for ethics about uh hmm. about ai and what i was basically arguing um I, the, the talk is something like why the creation of ai requires the cultivation of wisdom on our part hmm. and i was i was trying to point out that if you pay attention to right some of the main trends that are driving uh creation of of artificial general intelligence, AI that could eventually become autonomous, for example, mm -hmm. right? And you, you can see the, the kinds of things, the kinds of processes that are at work, right, um, in making this AI more intelligent. Like you, you make the processing more self-organizing. You, you make it much, you give it something like selective attention. Uh, because it turns out that selective attention is really, really crucial for you being intelligent, right? So you give it selective attention, you make its process more self-organizing, you make it developmental, right? You make it so that stuff actually matters to the system itself, not just to the, yeah. you, you. 
the thing is, the, the point is, and, and if, if your viewers want, they can go and look at that video for the more complex argument. The, the, the point is, as you give these abilities to machines to make them more intelligent, you're simultaneously making them more capable of being self-deceptive. Hmm. Because they're they okay. They're doing selective attention, right? Yeah. They're, right there, and they're they're paying and giving more value to things that are important to that system, right? And they're self-organizing in the way your attention hmm. is self-organizing and can lead you to be right. And so the thing is, what we what we're doing is making artificial intelligence. Even though we have a lot of good work, and I get to teach on this, that showing that your capacity for general intelligence is only weakly predictive of your capacity for being rational. I mean, this is all of the work of Keith Stanovich and a whole bunch of other people. Like, and I mean like a robust body of experimental work showing you know, that at most your intelligence, your general intelligence correlates with about, about 0.3 with measures of your, your, your capacity for rationality. Rationality is really something that has to be trained and socialized into you in a very powerful way. What and do you so, mean by rationality? So rationality, it, well, rationality, part of it was just what I was just saying a few minutes ago. Rationality is learning how to keep uh, the salience machinery and the truth-seeking okay. uh, machinery really tightly coupled together. So let me give you an example. You, 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 you say to people, oh, say, so I've got this uh, lily pond, right? I've got this pond, and it's, there's lily pads in it. And every day, the lily pads double in number. And on day 20, it's 100% full. On what day was the lily pad, the pond half filled with lily pads? And people will say, oh, on day 10, when of course it was on day 19, because day 19 was half, it's half of a full amount, which is the day yeah. just before. And, but you see what happens is, right, there's this quick firing machinery yeah. that makes you adaptively intelligent, and it makes this answer jump out at you, right, salient, and you have to bring this other machinery that you have to train to say, no, no, wait. Wait, wait. What? What's 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 the rule being used here? What's what are the principles at work here? Can I make sure that those principles are hooked up to the salience machinery because they come unglued, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to do a lot of work to 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 train to keep those together. Okay. So we're building a lot of AI without building a lot of artificial rationality, and even more importantly, right? If you add in this capacity for reflective, rational, developmental self-transcendence. We're, we need to build these machines with the capability of being artificial wisdom, right? They have to be capable yeah. of wisdom. So here's the thing. We have lots of exemplars of artificial general intelligence. Here we are. So we can model that for our AI. But you know what, what we don't have a lot of exemplars of for right? our machines? We don't have a lot of exemplars of rationality or wisdom. And we're not building hmm. rationality and wisdom into our AI machineries. Uh, so we, we have the, uh, we, we're running the very real risk that we're going to build machines that are intelligently foolish. Yeah, exactly. That's not, oxy that's not an oxymoron to say. Well, I mean, but can't we leverage that I, using the oh. narrative model? Can we can we put like the AI on a trajectory from a zygote to a wise man, right? And yeah. he's got to go through all these different quests and spend a lot of time as a fool to to shed his different. Um, to incorporate that that um, that balance between taking care of the self and taking care of the world, right? Totally. But how do we do it? We do it, and we were talking about it earlier in this in, in, in this pot, right? In this video, right? We, early, we do it by enmeshing ourselves in a society of agents, right? Okay. And we are interacting with them 
and, and you know dealing with a diversity of perspectives that we have to internalize into our own machinery and then we so that our individuation and our participation are constantly in this creative tension together yeah. so yeah. that yes we could but again now there are some people who are talking about social robotics and, and they deserve to be given more attention this is the idea of not building singular ais but building yeah. society of ai and if that was given more, more, so if we gave more priority to that, if we gave more priority to building artificial rationality, and some people are, by the way, and I don't mean to, I'm not trying to imply that nobody's doing work on this, but if we gave more emphasis to, you know, in addition to AI, constructing AR, artificial rationality, artificial wisdom, and yeah. doing this in a societal, cultural, you yeah. know, system of distributed cognition, then I think we could get that narrative to go. So that's one of the images that I came across when I was listening to one of your more technical uh, talks was that wouldn't we wouldn't it do well for us to place AI within a field that's very similar to what the field in which we develop, like a Darwinian field of yeah. like of other actors and, and changing circumstances where it has to by practice rather than by programming it has to learn to be flexible and hard and then know when to be flexible when to be hard and 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 just like through like over time maybe maybe that's what's uh, necessary to to extend the life of an ai uh, uh yeah i think so and, and to allow it to go through developmental stages yes i think very much i mean i it, it's it's well argued and i think sort of well established that there's a correlation between how intelligent uh, an organism in it, in, and how much of a social organization it has and uh, and also there's lots of people dan sperber has a book out the enigma of reason amongst others arguing hmm. that rationality originally develops for for exactly this this social the 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 the, the, the social processes we're talking about yeah. Look, most of our real problem solving is not done as sort of Lockean liberal individuals, right? We we do most of our mm -hmm. uh, problem solving within distributed cognition. It takes, uh, you know, it takes a organized community of people to run an airline. It takes an organized community of people to run a university, to do yeah. science, right, to run a railroad. And, all, you know, we're using language that neither knew, you nor I created yeah you know, this yeah. tech you see so almost all of our problem i mean because as as raw biological individuals we're kind of pathetic right uh you know we teeter <laughs> on a few legs we don't have like and nothing but you know you get a bunch of us to cooperate together with some pointy sticks and dogs and we can kill anything on the planet our greatest capacity is actually our ability to network together culturally in distributed cognition yeah. and so i think that that is not being given enough um, like I say, there are people doing this, and I don't want to imply that there aren't. But that idea about we, you know, that there's a deep connection between mm -hmm. uh, a, a system developing intelligence and perhaps rationality, and a system being able to uh, integrate and participate within distributed cognition. There's a deep connection there that is not being given enough emphasis right now. Uh, one of the things in again watching your stuff, especially about the AI, it seems like our our development of AI is forcing us to look more and more at ourselves and yeah. to figure out what we are it, it's like this conversation between what we're trying to invent and and trying to discover at the same time and it's yeah. almost like in trying to create our mirror image in matter we're, we're forced to really really look at what we are totally and, and that's again one of the things this is one of the new methods uh, of 
self-reflection, self-interpretation in a theoretically uh, uh, profound way that CogSci affords us. We're trying to reverse engineer us, yeah. and that is causing us to, uh, 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 you know, and, and, and it's giving us a new way. It's causing us, as you said, to reflect more deeply. It's giving us a, and new tools for trying to see how does this work. I mean, so, and, and this is going to have huge ramifications. I mean, if we make, and I think we will, I think it's reasonable I know it's like it's there's lots of hard stuff ahead and some of my technical talks talk about that hard stuff. Yeah. But I think we will have autonomous general intelligence in 30 years. Right. And maybe, the, uh, you know, at least I have arguments showing that might also overlap with, you know, artificially generated consciousness, things like that. What is that going to do to a lot of our axial traditions? Right. Mm -hmm. Because our 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 notion of ourselves as persons, uh, because we sort of possess perhaps magical, special stuff inside of us or whatever, that's going to be really, really. I mean, forget about like Darwin and evolution. Right. AGI is going to like really challenge a lot of I don't know what to call it. So uh, the soul. Right. The notion of a soul. Yeah. It's really, really going to challenge that. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to necessarily eradicate it, but it, it, our traditional, and again, I mean this in a non-pejorative sense, our traditional mythological way of trying to talk about that aspect of ourselves, that aspect of ourselves that's capable of self-transcendence, uh, participating and individuating at this, in some complex, you know, dynamical fashion, and becoming a person, again, which is really bloody mysterious, right? Yeah. That, yeah, we point to when we say soul, that's all important. But the mythology that that's a, a substance or thing inside mm -hmm. of me that can exist in a disembodied fashion, I mean, that's going to be really, really seriously challenged by the advent of this. And just saying, no, no, it'll never happen. That's a very dangerous strategy uh, yeah. to adopt. Uh, yeah, that's I mean, interesting because a lot of people, I mean, one of the ways of worrying about artificial intelligence is that it's just going to take over and then going to be the tool that rules the master, basically. Um, but what you're saying is that the problem's even deeper because it's going to bring to light just assumptions that we've held, axiomatic traditions that have like yeah. afforded us getting to this point in a certain respect with regards to technology. Exactly, exactly. And and I think, and, and so part of what I was doing with that talk at the Center for AI is I was saying, not only does the project of AI make us reflect, it should like in, in a moral imperative sense, we I think we have a moral imperative to be try to become more rational and more wise, precisely because our progeny is going to need that so that they yeah. don't become these super intelligent, self-deceiving, self-destructive beings. Yeah, I've been thinking. Uh, I I call that singularity the daughter of man rather than the son of man being Christ. The daughter of man is our our AI. Um, hopefully, will tend us as we go into the future, but um, it's still it's still deeply impactful and do you think that there's a way of developing are do you do you see yourself developing a new mythology or a new stance and mythology as in a framework by which we organize our society towards the future and towards the present and towards the past that will take ai into account like a kind of a science fiction sort of mythology or in that I, I, um i don't know i don't think i have i don't think i'm like an augustine or something like that. i don't think i have that 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 skill huh. uh, but but what I am trying to do is as much as possible 
integrate the cognitive science in which AI is playing a very powerful role into the project that we've just been discussing, this project of using this to radically reflect and mm. restructure right, our, our notion of you know, our soul-like nature or our, our spirituality and, and how we are so mm. concerned with, you know, uh, and, 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 and we should be, by the way, with, you know, seeking meaning, making meaning, and how that affords this process, this, you know, really like mm. highly valued since the actual revolution process of self-transcendence. Mm. And, and that's, that is what I'm trying to do. I, 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 you know, there'll be, there'll be other people, presumably, if, if things go well, that create uh, that mythology, but hopefully I can provide them with some of uh, yeah. the, the tools for doing that. Yeah, and the connections to the various thinkers. One of the things that you talk about is your practice. So you have a whole bunch of theory, you have a whole bunch of speech, but yeah, you, yeah. you also practice, and what's the relationship between the your ideas and then like your actual practice? You're a martial artist and... I don't know if you've talked about meditation, but I assume you practice meditation oh, yeah. in I, some way. I've been practicing uh, meditation for 28 years, uh, Tai Chi Chuan, uh, for the same amount of time. Also, related martial art, Pajin. Um, I do yoga, pranayama. Um, so I, I do a bunch of practices. I also do sort of dream work, like in a Jungian sense, and mm. working with that, try, uh, you know, inducing lucid dreaming as a way of trying to explore uh, use that as a, as a phenomenological exploration, explorative psychotechnology um, things, mm -hmm. and you know, and there's and, and again, there's good cog sci now emerging around lucid dreaming and what's going on, um, and so um, I, I practice all of these things uh, and other practices, um, uh, and so a little bit of my personal biography. I, I went into university and I met like Plato and the Republic. And, and, you know, your first philosopher is like your first girlfriend or something, right? It's just like, right? It's like, ah, right? And, 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 um, and, and so, and I, and I still consider myself, uh, uh, you know, a Platonist in some, uh, in some sense. Uh, it's, that, it's been that informative and transformative. Plato is sacred to me, not in the sense that I think of him as having supernatural authority, but in the sense that I can continually return to him and he's an inexhaustible source as I develop of insight and intelligibility mm. that is my development. And so there's that ongoing resonance. And so, I, you know, I live through Plato and he constantly comes alive again through me. And, and that's what I mean by he's sort of sacred to me. And then that, so that's how deeply it, it took. But then as I went on in academic philosophy, and this is way back, like in the 80s, right? That whole topic of wisdom, it drops off the page. Yeah. Like you don't, there's nobody talking about this, right? Yeah. Now, I found the project of what you might call, so I often make a distinction between ancient philosophia, like the way Pierre Hadot talks about it, right? And modern philosophy, right? Whereas, whereas ancient philosophia is this project of trying to, create psychotechnologies and communities of practice for cultivating wisdom, right? And the discourse is just part of that. And then modern philosophy is this sort of meta-theoretical enterprise, right? And I, I came to see the value of that, especially for science, like doing the philosophy of science, doing learning about, you know, mm -hmm. really powerful, important cultural critique, seeing how cultural framework cu cultural frameworks and conceptual frameworks are intertwined. This is all very powerful stuff. So I came to independently value philosophy for its own sake, but I still felt the longing for the philosophia. So I started to take up all of these practices 
as a way, and there was nothing in the Western tradition, like, like, and so I started to take up all these practices as, okay, well, this is all I've got, right, and, you know, I'll read Plato, and I'll learn meditation, and I'll read this, right, I'll read the sutras, and I'll, I'll read the Tao Te Chen, and do Tai Chi, and, right, and, and, and all of that, and, and so for a long time, those things were separate from me, right, and, and I, and then I finished my MA in philosophy, and then Cognitive science had emerged as a discipline, and I went, that's where I want to go. And I went back and did a honors BSc in cognitive science to get the scientific training. And by the time, it's just a weird synchronicity. By the time I had finished that, the disciplines had sort of caught up. You know, psychology starts to talk about wisdom, cognitive science and philosophy. And now there's this burgeoning discourse hmm. about it. And, 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 and not just... And again, not just ideas. There's a, lo a lot of discussion, and Pierre Hardot has a lot deserves a lot of credit for bringing this back about the practices he used to call them spiritual exercises, right? That we engage in when we're trying to cultivate wisdom. So this is under a lot of discussion. And so the Kogsai had, had had sort of we synced up with my practice. And so what I started to do, I was one. Of, I think I was the first person um, at U of T to talk about mindfulness like in an academic setting, right? Like when I started doing it, like, and, um, <laughs> and, and, and I was sort of like, oh, well, I'm going to talk to you about this and don't worry. And I, I'm not going to weird out on you, right? Um, you know, <laughs> and, but now, of course, it, it, you know, it's a really hot topic. We're in the middle mm -hmm. of the Marxist revolution and all these studies are done on it. Uh, Leo Ferraro and I published a, a, a book chapter on it a couple of years ago, sort of trying to get a critical handle on it. Uh, and, and so, and, and it's the same thing with the topic of wisdom, right? So yeah. what's now what's now happened for me, and, 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 so I'm, I'm not taking authorship for this, I'm saying it just unfolded this way, is mm -hmm. that now these two things are just massively informing each other. And, okay. and, 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 and I get to teach on both sides. So I teach, uh, I teach people, you know, on the cognitive science of mindfulness, on insight, and then I'll teach them, you know, in an extracurricular at the multi-faith center at the University of Toronto, I'll teach them meditation, I'll teach them contemplation, I'll teach them Tai Chi Chuan, so that they can try and actually internalize, right, and get some skill about how do I go about building a practice that actually implements mm -hmm. this theory. And then, of course, it feeds back, because as you do, this, these, these practices are very akin to like what phenomenology as a discipline does for you. It really gets you to explore the structures and principles that are governing your experience. And that mm -hmm. and that's very valuable information for trying to understand right yeah. the cognitive processes that are at work generating that experience. There's uh I, in one of your talks or it might have been the interview with Peugeot, you talk about cognition it might even been the discussion you had with Peterson uh, a few years ago in 2016, I believe. But you, you talk about like there's these layers of cognition that we go through, like there's these jumps where we start to analyze our in analysis and then analyzing the analysis of our analysis. Yeah, that and, was the talk with Jordan. And that's in, it's 2015, actually. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and what I was worried about or what i see is that like there's this way of becoming meta that yeah. you dissolve into noise you dissolve into chaos like that postmodern you know like everything's uh, common on everything and the only thing we have left is irony because nothing matters anymore because we're so removed and it, i wonder 
I'm trying to phrase this as a question, but the practice of meditation, the practice of, of a martial art, the practice of being embodied and, and, and being aware of the body, is that not a way of maintaining stability as you go through these different yeah. levels of, of jumping sure. back and jumping back? See, so, yeah, I, I, and you, you probably know that third generation, so first generation coxi is the idea that we're computers, Second generation is no, we're neural networks. Third generation is no, we're dynamical embodied systems, right? And so the idea of embodiment is now, and we're more and more discovering that stuff mm. we think is cognitive is just exapted out of more basic biological processes. Mm. So how do you, for example, how do you navigate through an abstract problem space? You're using the machinery that you use to navigate through physical space. You're, you're, so uh, Michael Anderson is doing just some really incredible work on this, right? This idea of cognitive exaptation, that what, what, what we do, is, what the brain does is it reuses circuits that are originally crafted for doing X and then it reuses them for doing Y. Let me give you a non-controversial phys- uh, example. I'm using this thing to talk to you. It did yeah. not evolve for that. It evolved <laughs> for moving food around and tasting poison, and it just happens to be in the airway because that's how evolution just, you know, did it. But that makes it a perfect machine for exacting uh-huh. into speech. And that, and so as an analogy, your brain is constantly doing that. So the embodied aspect, uh, I think, uh, of our cognition is actually way more fundamental than people are giving credit to. Um, mm-hmm. And and again. You want to you you want to know this not propositionally. You don't want to know this as statements you can make. You want to know it procedurally. You want to know it as skills you possess. You want to know it perspectively. You want to know it as salience landscapes that you can inhabit. You want to know it in a participatory fashion, like that way in which you right you create a deep co-identification between you and the, the world. So this agent arena relationship is established. That's how you have to be embodied. And yes, I think when you do that. That provides a kind of grounding. Now, I think there's a second part to to that. And if you remember when I talked to Jordan, I said, like, the the the, the problem is, is is if you just go up. Yeah. Right? If you just go all the way up. Yeah. Right. And the thing is, right. And 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 then um, I believe Jordan said, well, maybe sort of stop halfway between. I said, well, no, because there's no normativity about where you should stop. That's that's part of how the postmodernist, well, certain postmodern. I don't like to group them together as a, yeah, as yeah, a yeah. Single group. Some arguments move that way, right? And then I say, well, I think a response, a really good response, is like the, the response that you can see Spinoza making in the Western tradition, very rational, or you can see the Buddhists making in their position in a very contemplative one, which is, look, what I want to do is I want to try and get, right, things are absurd when there's a clash between this embodied perspective in which all these things are meaningful and relevant, and then this disembodied one in which they're they're meaningless like what does it matter right and what spinoza was saying is yeah but and if you read the ethics you don't read the ethics just to get the ideas you read the ethics to go through the process of reading the ethics because the process actually transforms your cognitive he says you can get to this state scantia intuitiva in which you see all of the argument in each premise and you see how each premise fits into all of the argument and so you get this simultaneously zooming out and zooming in at the same time Mm -hmm. right and and, he, and and then he, and then he says, and if you follow the argument, you can now do that to sort of the cosmos, and you can get this. And he said, that's that's a state of blessedness because you no longer you don't have the upper level undermining 
the engagement of the lower level, but you don't have the lower level making you, you know, just, you know, this impulsive thing that's just acting on salience all the time. Yeah. And so I think that, and I mean, in, in, uh, in Buddhist practice, you, you, you get a state like that, you, this non-duality state in which it's simultaneously as big and as, as small, right? And, you know, yeah. something like the, there's a Tibetan thing that says you, you want to be as vast as the sky, but as as detailed as fine barley flour or something like that yeah. at the same time. And so I think there is a perspectival way of responding to that issue. I mean, where you both you can you can engage your embodiment in spiritual practices, but you can learn this skill of scansi intuitiva or prajna, and that really helps you address uh, uh, these issues around absurdity and the undermining of meaning by sort yeah. of zooming out. It um, seems like a lot of problems come from us trying to take shortcuts to transcendence and. Yes. Anywhere yes. from like that personal, that individual who wants to reach a nirvana uh, and does it too quick and just completely, you know, just reaches a state where nothing matters because everything's infinite or the activist who wants to reach utopia and just take that leap. Uh, I don't want to like fix myself and do all the things with my own community. I want to change the world and I, I want to make sure that everybody understands that the world needs to be changed, you know? Um, and it yeah. seems like uh, there's a contingent within academia um, that kind of is fostering or, or writing along that desire for at least young people, people who are not yet wise, let's say to just want to, you know, take that leap to transcendence, take that leap to tasting God, take that leap to utopia. So, I mean, um, first of all, about at that in academia, I don't, I don't meet those people very much. So, uh, hmm. I, I, uh, so it's, it's, uh, I don't. They're not a, a, a pressing confrontational presence in, in, in my career in any significant way. I mean, hmm. I, I meet with people. I think that are uh, are utopic in the way I think you're describing. And I think that's problematic. I think there's a general, I don't think it's a specific to academia, I guess what I'm trying to say. I think it's a general cultural thing in which we keep confusing development with the possession of the magical algorithm. I don't need to do all this development. Here's, and if I, could, I just need this magical rule, this magical technique, and if I apply <laughs> this, again, I don't have to go through all this developmental work and change. I can just, right, I can I can just get there with this magic bullet technique. And I I, 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 I worry that in general, like I think you're suggesting, that makes us really, really susceptible um, to bullshitting because, again, the salient, mm. but we're basically licensing the salience, just really overleaping, right, um, all of the training of all the kinds of knowing we have to go through before we can be sure, at least, I don't mean certain, but reliably sure that our salience is tracking the real patterns mm -hmm. in the world, right? Um, so I, I'm generally concerned with that. Uh, okay. Just the way our culture is doing that in general. It's just sort of there's this flattening and shortening of everything. And it may be towards your point about that the effect the media has on sort of making things very superficial and shallow in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it, re the, it rewards the person who can come out with the most salient uh, you know, instance you get all that yeah. attention and then you go on to getting that next attention and the next attention and the next attention. And, and, and then, you know, and that, and that, that feeds on, you know, it, it both engenders and is empowered by, you know, an increasing prevalence of narcissism in our society because mm -hmm. narcissism is all about, you know, 
I don't earn or cause your regard. I just become salient in such a way that I'm constantly <laughs> getting your unearned positive regard, right? And, and yeah. that's that, so it just, it's really part of the narcissistic epidemic that we're facing. Unearned positive regard. That's beautiful. <laughs> and huh. I, so I want to be clear about something uh, because I don't yeah. want to give the impression. Uh, um, and, you know, and you you've mentioned Jordan a couple of times and we're colleagues and we've talked together and everything. My experience with UFT is very different, right? And I'm not speaking to his experience. He has every right. To I, I don't want people coming away from thinking that I'm in some sort of confrontational relationship with UFT. Okay. I'm not. UFT is treating me extremely well, and mm. I, I'm I, I'm extremely happy there, right? And, <laughs> so I, I don't. I mean, I'm often getting paired with Jordan, and and oh, okay. that's that's fine. And, and, and people have every right to do that. I'm not disagreeing with that. But, you know, like we're talking about, association just drifts, right? And yeah. I'm not. I have a, I have a very good – I have some criticisms perhaps of how aspects of UFT reacted to Jordan when he yeah. first did some of the things. But I want people to know that UFT is treating me extremely well, and I, I'm happy there. So we're – that, that – there, there isn't a similarity there for us. All right. Yeah, I guess if Jordan Peterson is now alt-right adjacent and you're uh, Jordan Peterson adjacent, then you might as well just be alt-right adjacent too. You, you, thank you. You represented my concern uh, very clearly. And so I it's just such wanted... a slippery slope. That, that's another That's another uh, bad uh, telling uh, of, a, of a narrative of being able to, you know, identify the bad guy. And because yeah. everybody wants to identify the bad guy so that they can be the good guy, then you just need to go around and figure out ways of identity, identifying the bad guy or identifying the guy that you want to be the bad guy with the bad guy and then identifying everybody around that person. And then identifying everybody around the person who's around that person. And I, I've been called that too, like I'm alt-right adjacent or whatever, just because I, I speak with different people or I, I criticize certain ideas. It's 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 a fraught game and that's that's another very shallow way of moving through the world, of developing discourse. It's just making this it's taking a network model and and yes. and, and reducing it to this weird duality uh, proposition of good and good and bad. Well, if you'll allow me, I want to speak to it. I think there's an additional critique I would want to make. I think, and I've tried to give you some indications throughout, uh, that if we try to respond to the meaning crisis at the, mm. in the framing of adversarial relationships between propositional systems, yes. we, are, we are misframing ourselves and the problem precisely because we are not connecting to that procedural, perspectival, participatory, embodied kind of knowing that has kept coming up in our discussion. And so we are, if, if we if we see this as mm. a, if we frame this as a clash of po uh, political ideologies in an adversarial manner, I think we are deeply, de deeply misframing this. It's like getting trapped inside the nine dot problem and you're yeah. not going to actually be able to address the meaning crisis. So I, 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 I'm not, I'm, I, 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 I resist when people try to push this into uh, a sort of a political adversarial okay. thing. I, I, I say no. I, I find that deeply hypocritical mm. because if you if you're paying attention to my work, I'm trying to say this right. This sticking and making super salient the adversarial clash of propositions is to blind us 
to yes. the machinery that we actually need for responding to the meaning crisis. So I, I, I'm mm. sort of, I'm quite sort of, I, I, what's the right? I'm passionate about that uh, as a response, right? It, it really matters to me that people get that. Well, do you think that, speaking of martial arts then, do you yeah. think martial arts was exapted into a contemplative practice? It started out as fighting, it started out as adversarial, and then became a way of exploring relation relationality and participation? Or do you think yeah. it was like, you know, like like t Cubs fighting, it was more about participation mm -hmm. and then it was exapted to self-defense? Sure, and martial arts and that kind of thing are, are a really great way of getting into the flow state, and the flow state mm -hmm. is very transformative. Um, uh, the person to talk to about this is a good friend of mine, co-author Leonardo, Leonardo Ferraro, because he, he's like this gifted uh, martial artist. He's kind of the uh, uh, kind of like amongst my group. He's the in-house philosopher of martial arts. Um, and so I know I, I, I don't want to speak over simplistically because I can hear him behind me. Um, and but it, at least in some of the histories, it looks like the martial arts start out for martial goals and then get exapted into spiritual things. But I, I suspect that in some mm -hmm. situations it might have gone the other way, that you have sort of Taoist practices, breathing practices and moving practices that then get exapted into martial art. But I, I suspect that it's going both ways in sort of a complex history. Yeah. Uh, don't know. So uh, notice my word, I suspect. Yeah. And that would be something I would want to talk to Leo a lot more about because he would be able to give, I think, a much better answer to that question than I could. Well, I mean, that line of questioning as can we can we change? Can we use this adversarial nature of public discourse as a way of moving beyond the adversarial and becoming okay. participatory? Oh, yeah. OK, then, then the invocation of Leo was exactly pertinent. Thank you for doing that, because because he said he one of the things he's done, one of the insights he's had is he said, you know, John, you do all this work on how the brain uses opponent processing in order to optimize because it, it, it plays on trade off relationships. And that's in some of the more technical work. But yeah. he said, Brilliant but stuff. right. He said we should be we should be setting ourselves up to do opponent processing right, for optimization rather than adversarial processing for maximization. Because what happens in adversarial processing is I try to maximize one value at the complete expense of the other, right? Whereas in opponent processing, right, uh, what I'm doing is these two things are locked together and I, I'm constantly optimizing between two trade-off values. Let mm -hmm. me give you a very quick example, right? I, I need a level of arousal, and I don't mean sexual arousal, I mean metabolic arousal, yeah. right? And so my auto, my autonomic nervous system, meaning self-governing nervous system, is divided up into two subsystems, parasympathetic and the sympathetic. The sympathetic is what arouses you based on environmental stimuli, and the parasympathetic is what calms you down, right? And they're locked together like this. They're pushing on and pulling on each other, right, like this. And what, what that does is there isn't a little man inside that has to sort of constantly calibrate your level of arousal. These two things, by constantly pulling and pushing on each other, are constantly optimizing. You don't want to be ever maximally, like unless a tiger's chasing you or something, you don't want to be at maximal arousal, right? And you, you only want to be at minimal arousal when you're sleeping. You don't want to spend the rest of your life, right? And it's, there is no... There's no one place of arousal you want to be at. You want to be dynamically, constantly shifting around. And opponent processing does that. Now, imagine if something went crazy wrong with your, paris with your autonomic nervous system and it became an adversarial system in which the sympathetic system was dedicated to crushing and destroying yes. the parasympathetic system so that we would then always be at maximal stress. That's an analogy, I think, of how our politics is going yes. right now. And Leo's great insight was, look, we, should, we can take 
this stuff, John, that you're talking about in how the brain works, and we should be using that as a model for how we should be trying to do solving our political problems. We should be trying to replace adversarial processing that's trying to maximize one value at the expense yeah. of another with opponent processing that is trying to optimize between them. So you're no longer playing to win, you're playing to produce a winning state, right? So you're right. not trying to win against who you're fighting against, you're trying to win in the sense that you guys can come into a contention that will benefit both parties or all parties, maybe? Yes, Op will be optimal for both parties and will be most appropriate to the current context. You see, this is a, a way, uh, like, we, we've lost, we're, I, I fear, sorry, I don't want to too bold. I fear we're losing the commitment to democracy. See, what makes democracy mm. great isn't is is its capacity for self-correction. Yeah. Right. That's what makes it the better system than all the other systems. We have all kinds of ideologies, but what what I think the core of what makes democracy a better system is precisely because of its capacity for self-correction, self-transformation, and it was built that procedural notion of uh, democracy was originally founded on ideas like opponent processing. That's what originally the checks and balances were supposed to be, right? Yeah, For example, yeah. in the American Constitution. But gridlock is to take that opponent processing that is supposed to keep the democracy self-corrective and manipulate it and hijack it into adversarial processing, which is we will crush of the opposition so they can never possibly you know, interact in our political arena yeah. ever again. And that dovetails into one wanting to leap to the end goal, wanting to leap yes. to the winning state, yeah. and two always being obsessed with short gain, short gain. Yes. And, exactly. and it's the in both sense, senses, it's the opposite of wisdom, which yes. is wisdom would be the ability to be engaged here and now, and also to be able to see how the here and now is going to affect and was caused by something greater. Right. That's very well said. That is okay. very well said. Yeah. Well, good luck to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that goes back to the original thing about, you know, are you pessimistic or optimistic? Um, like I said, I'm getting more optimistic. Yeah. Uh, but but we're, in a, we're, we're in all kinds of races right now. There's all kinds of forces and factors. There's all kinds of, you know, problems that are becoming very urgent uh, for us. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, predicting the future is often a fool's thing uh, to try and do. Yeah. Um, other than, like, where you have very specific... You know, like when we were talking about AI or something like that, we can, we can talk about very specific principles and patterns are at work. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I just keep trying my best and trying to hook up with other people that I think are, you know, even if I disagree with them to some degree, who I think are in good faith, or, you know, really trying to understand, not just make salient this issue of the meaning crisis, but really understand it and really try and propose both, you know, theoretical and praxis, you know, changes in behavior that kind of address it. So you're releasing or your release plan is every Friday you have another uh, video in yeah. your series. And uh, you published a book last year with a couple of co-authors or one other co-author about zombies. Yeah, yeah. Christopher Master Pietro and Philip Misovic. We were basically arguing that we were trying to say, you know, the, the spike in, in, in sort of the zombie, the zombie is, is a modern myth, right? That's myth in the sense we've been talking about today, right? And why this myth and why is it so powerful and why is it spiking? And we said, well, I, we think, and we tried to argue, like if you look at it, many of the characteristics of the zombie, not just the zombie, the zombie being paired with apocalypse, the zombie apocalypse is, yeah. right, this, this tremendous perversion um, of a lot of our, uh, you know, our, 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 
cultural grammar, like it's the you know the, the zombie is a perversion of Christian resurrection, the apocalypse. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then and then and then more general features of the zombie: they're mindless, they they move in hordes, but they they're not in no way communal, right? Yeah. Right. They and, brains. And, Right, they brains. They're not supernatural. They're just decadent us, right? And mm -hmm. all these features point to them as we, well. We argued as a mythology articulating um, sort of the advent or or, or the pertin the pertinent urgency of the meaning crisis. Mm -hmm. Now, Chris and I are working on the second book that okay. should be done at some point. Uh, it's called Unsheltered, and basically, um, it's to try and unpack the history of how we came into the meaning crisis. And then the third book will be the science, very much like the series. Like uh, mm -hmm. the second book is the historical analysis. The third book is the scientific analysis. I'm also working on another book uh, with um, uh, Daniel Craig, um, uh, Madeleine Abraham, and uh, Hannah Cho on um, the cognitive continuum, sort of from fluency to enlightenment, really trying mm -hmm. to get at the uh, fluency, insight, uh, experiences of self, of flow, self-transcendence, Right, awakening experiences. What's the cognitive machinery running through this continuum, and how can we better understand it? So that's yeah. what's coming this this year. Your your work or like your body of work is so excellent because it, you have the practical stuff, then you have the scientific stuff, and you have the theoretical stuff. And uh, and the theoretical stuff is a bunch of ideas and history too. It's just such a it's a whole ecosystem that you've developed, and it's just wonderful to dive in. Well, well, thank you. I mean, like I said, I, I, I try to, uh, I, I try to be uh, uh, performatively, um, mm. to have performative integrity. I try to exemplify uh, as much as just speak, right? And I try to uh, make available examples of what I'm talking about um, in my in in, in 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 what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Do you have any plans to do like a kids book or maybe a Netflix children's special, like to reduce all your ideas down into? <laughs> I never thought about that. Cartoons. I should I should ask I should ask my my older son lives with me. I should ask him what's it what was it like growing up with me and what's, what's, what's that? Um, uh, I mean I mean we have wonderful uh, discussions now. He finished his degree at U of T in uh, in biology, so we have some very oh, cool. uh, really great arguments about the philosophy of biology. Uh, hmm. The philosophy of biology, people like my colleague uh, Dennis Walsh at uh, U of T, the philosophy of biology is just having such a huge impact on cognitive science. It's going, uh, and our understanding of the science of biology and what biological organisms are and what's actually at work in evolution, it's just a really, really exciting time right now. Wow. Is that philosophy of science, philosophy of biology, I always kind of have a hard time like getting a grasp on that. Is that ways of um, building a narrative of what we're doing? Or is it like um, it, key questions to frame that which we are participating in as, as well, well, part of curious it's a creatures? Yeah, part of it's a reflection on what do biologists do, but part of it's also a meta-theoretical thing. Like, um, so, for example, there, there's many people saying, uh, is, the, is the modern synthesis where you basically explain everything in terms of natural selection and, gen, and Mendelian genetics, is, this, is it a sufficient account of how you know, mm. animal morphology is being, you know, changed. And I'm using this in really heavy quotes, designed, right, uh, to fit the environment uh, better. And many people are arguing no, because right, it doesn't give, uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't pay attention to important factors like the factor of niche construction, 
right, that organisms are shaping the environment that then shapes them. And yeah. so, right, there's this dynamical embeddedness and processing between the environment and the organism that's playing a very crucial role. And mm -hmm. in that sense, organisms are agents in the process of evolution. They're not just passive receptacles of selfish genes or, or things like that. And yeah. so, and, and yeah, and that's just an example of, of, mm -hmm. of a whole bunch of concerns that are rising to the surface, and, you know, or like what, what, so let me be very clear. I think that the Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection is one of the top five scientific theories we have right now. But the thing is, it's kind of a problematic thing because what kind of theory is it? Because it does, it's not like other, it's not like the atomic theory where I can make sort of, you know, strict predictions or I can do experimental manipulations in order to get confirmation of the theory. I have to do this weird historical narrative. Yeah, just stuff. so story yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so you have to be really, and so it's like, okay, it's a great theory. Nobody denies that. But it's not like the the sort of the some of our core theories in physics so mm. what does that mean for the nature of scientific explanation what does that mean for the nature of scientific understanding that's the kind of stuff you're doing in the philosophy of biology and and cognitive science is this a correct analogy to make is trying to come up with a theory of mind then a theory of yes. what it means to be a i guess a, a conscious being a, co a conscious cognitive being so the the the, the, the holy grails to explain in cognitive sciences how do we have general intelligence? How do we have consciousness? And then how do we have what philosophers call intentionality? How is it that stuff going on here actually, I'm experiencing it as there, like my mind is about things in the world. It's directed at things in the world. Somehow there's, right, and there's this sort of primordial meaning relationship that my mental states have. They're about the world. And like, and other pieces of matter don't have any of those properties, right? And so yeah. how, or like, how does that come about? Those are the holy grails of cognitive science. And with that, and the, the other thing about cognitive science is it seems like there's a lot of practical uses for it. One, to make our, our lives better, and two, to develop better technologies to make our lives better. Totally. So there, there's all of that, uh, definitely. And so there's a lot of practical uh, spin-offs in that sense from uh, cognitive science. I'm also working uh, with uh, some other people to put together, um, like uh, uh, what, what we, we were we pretty much have done, uh, like a business in which we take a lot of these uh, ideas about psychotechnologies of rationality, insight, self-regulation, empathetic internalization, and and we put it together into like a series of workshops that were yeah. basically going to sell and say like this is how you could actually try and uh, become wiser individuals. Uh, and so not just keep it in the academic world, but actually turn it yes. into uh, uh, something that people can uh, you know, avail themselves of. Yeah. Excellent. When is that going to be released in 2020? Uh, so the, 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 it's called the Sophia Framework. The business is uh, pretty much um, in place. Um, it's, we're, we're putting some final touches on um, uh, these workshops, and we're also in the process of developing a phone app to sort of help people in making decision makings, uh, in making decisions, sir. Uh, so that, I mean, hopefully that will all be something that comes to fruition in 2019. Wow. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and the hope is, again, that there'll be cross-feed, right, that as people get interested in acquiring these practical things, that will turn them on to the cognitive science yeah. and to the larger cultural project of responding to the meaning crisis and vice versa. 
Wow. <laughs> so much work done. Thanks so much, John, for joining me. This has been an excellent discussion or conversation. Uh, I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, uh, yeah. Um, it's, I, 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 I welcome the opportunity to engage in this uh, genuine sort of platonic dialogue. I find it, again, like what we talked about earlier, I find it just really important that we get more and more examples yeah. of this out there. Yeah, it's uh, you're. I think that you're on the verge of be getting out there. Like you're about to have like your, your debutante party. Your Kathy Newman interview is going to be something to watch. You know, that's um, a Jordan well, Peterson reference. Sorry to bring him up again. It's okay. I, I mean, I'm kind of ambivalent about that. I want. I do want the ideas to get out. Um, you, you may not get that from what's happening right now, but I'm by nature I'm quite socially phobic. This is all hmm. very uh, carefully crafted. Um, uh, persona that I've developed. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. And so, and so the idea of being this exposed, it does provoke quite a bit um, mm. of anxiety for me. But on the other hand, I really do, I, I hope that came through, I really do care about these issues and I've really put a lot of work into trying to do stuff that I think can at least be valuable to other people who are concerned with the issues. Yeah. Well, hopefully this interview will get you more exposure because you deserve it, even if you don't want it. You deserve it. <laughs> I, I half want it. I do want it and I don't want it. I, I'm ambivalent about it, like I said. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, uh, thank you very much.